Welcome to this podcast of the New York City Bar Association. In this episode, Tenant Harassment, the third episode in our series on housing part proceedings and the reality of housing court. Agata Rumferecht Behrens, a court attorney in Queens Housing Court, moderates a panel discussion with Vijay Kitson, a partner at Hertz Cherchen Rosenthal, specializing in landlord-tenant trial advocacy, Rachel Nager, a tenant attorney and advocate representing tenants in housing court, and Judge Shorab Ibrahim, a housing judge appointed in 2018. The statements and opinions of each speaker are their own and do not represent the views or opinions of other speakers, the housing court committee, the city bar, respective law firms, or the Office of Court Administration. Here's Agata Rumferecht Behrens. We are excited to present to you the third episode of our podcast. Our topic today is not as clear-cut as dealing with housing maintenance code violations. I hope that it will give rise to a spirited discussion among our panelists. My name is Agata Rumferecht Behrens, and I am a court attorney. I was assigned to the HP part in Queens Housing Court for the last two years. Uh, My name is Vijay Kitson. I'm a partner at Hertz, Churson Rosenthal, and I specialize in landlord-tenant trial advocacy. Hi, everyone. My name is Rachel Nager. I'm a tenant attorney and advocate representing tenants to fight for housing justice issues against displacement and gentrification. Hi, uh, my name is Judge Sharab Ibrahim. I've been a judge for four years now. The last two, I have been assigned to the Bronx HP part. Today, we will be discussing harassment cases that are brought under the Housing Maintenance Code. So let's start by talking a little about the background of the harassment cases under this code. Residential real estate and rentals have been a topic of many discussions and laws over the years. New York City has some of the broadest tenant protections and rights of any big cities in America, even if the tenant advocates in our group still think those laws are insufficient. With the rent stabilization laws on the books that allowed for high rent deregulation, the legislature was concerned with a noticeable effort by landlords to empty rent regulated or rent stabilized apartments so that the rents could be increased and eventually taken out of rent stabilization protections. The legislature wanted to protect residential tenants from harassment by building owners in order to prevent tenant displacement and also to protect the affordable housing stock in the city. In 2008, the New York City Council passed Local Law Number 7, which effectively amended the New York City Administrative Code Housing Maintenance Section to define harassment and imposed on the landlords a duty not to harass. Civil penalties were also created as part of the enforcement mechanism. In 2018, the New York City Administrative Code was further amended, and these amendments amended the civil penalty section and expanded the definition of harassment and harassing behaviors. Rachel, why don't you tell us what kind of conduct the legislature was looking at with these 2018 amendments? Thanks, Agata. The city council amended the administrative code in 2018 that expanded the harassment cause of action, the definition, the penalties, the damages. I think that it's really important to recognize the legislation that was happening all around that same time. A look at the context to better understand the legislative intent for harassment. Around the same time harassment was expanded, the same city council passed the STS bills, or the package of bills promoted by the Stanford Tenant Safety, STS, coalition. The STS bills attempted to attack construction as harassment. So many of those bills created new rules for the Department of Buildings, things like requiring a tenant protection plan, posting a construction bill of rights, increasing the speed of inspections when receiving complaints of work without permits, and so on. So around that time that the harassment definition was expanded, also the Certificate of No Harassment Pilot Program was passed. That was expanded citywide in 2021. But all of these laws were passed by the same city council really in rapid fire. So it's important to see harassment in this lens because you can really better understand what the legislature was trying to do. 
when you go back and read the hearing transcripts for when they were considering the expansion of harassment, they clearly stated that they wanted to make it easier for tenants to bring harassment cases. The expansion of harassment did a lot of things, just to name a few. It created a rebuttable presumption. It expanded the list of enumerated acts that constitutes harassment. It enlarged the amount of civil penalties that attach. It guaranteed a payment to the tenant by allowing the election of $1,000 per finding of harassment or compensatory damages. Importantly, it's one of the few causes of action that allows for damages and removes all judicial discretion around that. The court must award damages and attorney's fees if they find that harassment did exist. So it allows for discretion for punitive damages. But as long as the court finds harassment, the court must award damages or money election. That's really incredible. I think it's important to keep in mind that the definition of harassment under the Housing Maintenance Code enumerates very specific behaviors. It's not enough for the landlord to be mean or rude or even disrespectful. So why don't we talk um, and discuss the statutory definition of harassment? So you can find the definition for harassment in the administrative code. And oftentimes people think of harassment just as the colloquial term, you know, physical abuse or something inappropriate happening. But harassment as defined by the administrative code has a very unique meaning. So a couple things to keep in mind. First, it's important to note that owners have a duty not to harass their occupants. Agata just mentioned this. And remember Travis's golden rule from our last episode that owner is defined very broadly in the housing maintenance code as essentially anyone who is an agent or in control of the building. That could be the corporate entity, the individual owner, the shareholder, the principal, the managing agent, the super, so on. They all have the duty to not harass their occupants. And second, as we touched on in the last episode, you don't have to be a tenant with the lease. You do need to be a lawful occupant to bring a harassment claim. That's a very good point, Rachel. It seems that by the most recent case law, only a squatter is definitively prevented from being, bringing an HP harassment case. Right. And so what is harassment? What is tenant harassment as defined by the administrative code? Harassment is essentially whenever an owner acts or fails to act in a way that is intended to force the occupant to vacate or to surrender their rights related to occupancy and includes one of the code's enumerated acts or omissions. So the code has a list of things that the owner must do or fail to do that is considered harassment. So let's break that down. First, your rights related to occupancy can include not just your right to actually occupy and therefore not feel forced to vacate your home, but it also includes rights related to safe and habitable housing living without conditions of disrepair, rights related to quiet enjoyment, living safely, peacefully, comfortably, rights related to government oversight, protection and enforcement, feeling free to call through on one, making complaints, filing an HP case. So those are your rights related to occupancy, but what are the enumerated acts that must also attach to this definition? The code lists multiple sections of acts or omissions that constitute harassment. I won't go through each and every one of those because we need a lot more time, but I will give some really easy examples. If an owner repeatedly fails to correct class B or C violations from HPD within the time required by law, that can constitute harassment. That's subsection B2. If an owner makes a false statement about the rent stabilization status of the building on permit applications with DOB, that can constitute harassment. That's subsection A2. If an owner offers a tenant or an occupant a buyout without following the specific instructions outlined in the code, then that constitutes harassment. That's subsection F2. If an owner removes your possessions from the apartment, then that can constitute harassment as subsection E. If an owner changes your locker, removes the door, plugs the entrance, then that can constitute harassment as subsection F. If the owner does anything to disturb your comfort, peace, quiet, repose, 
that can constitute harassment, subsection G. And there's many more enumerated acts that are listed in the code that I haven't gone through, but you just need to keep in mind that to constitute harassment, there has to be one of the enumerated acts attached to the definition. That was a great explanation of the statutory definition and some acts that constitute harassment under Housing Maintenance Code. So what relief is available to someone that brings a harassment case? Um, I could touch on that, uh, Agata. So as Rachel mentioned, um, if harassment is, uh, is proven, a tenant can elect to have a $1,000 um, fine paid to them, or they can try to choose uh, prove compensatory damages that may be higher than $1,000. Um, punitive damages, as Rachel mentioned, is left at the court's discretion entirely under the statute. Um, punitive damages in some cases may serve the public interest by, if the court assesses them, deterring similar conduct by either the same owner or other owners in, in the city. These damages, the punitive damages, should bear some reasonable relation to the harm done to the tenant occupant while also taking into, the, into account the flagrancy of the conduct of the owner in that particular case. Um, the code also requires the placement of a C-class violation if harassment is found. Um, the court likely, if the conduct continues, can issue an injunction enjoining an owner from engaging in the harassing um, acts or omissions. Um, there are civil penalties that have to be assessed. They can range anywhere from 2000 to 10000 per act. Again, the court exercises discretion. I mean, that's a that's a wide range, 2000 to 10000 um, The court will assess that penalty based on a number of factors. Again, looking at whether the acts were particularly egregious and the level of, of intent to harass shown to that particular um, tenant or occupant. And as Rachel mentioned, this is one of the um, few statutes that I'm aware of that uh, requires attorney's fees in, in so much as the statute uses the word shall. So a successful petitioner is entitled to their reasonable attorney's fees in a harassment claim. But um, so, so those are basically the things that uh, a successful petitioner in a harassment claim would be entitled to. Thank you, Judge Ibrahim, for this rundown of the remedies available in a harassment case. So how does a tenant go about bringing a harassment case to court? Well, most cases, in fact, every single harassment case that I've seen in, uh, in my time on the bench has been brought by order to show cause. Um, and most cases are brought without an attorney. So there are forms that the court provides um, that has some of the statutory language in them. Um, we can talk about how those may be problematic, but the tenant comes to court or the occupant um, is given a form. They fill that form out. Now, that's not starting the case. That form, the order to show cause, goes in front of a judge, and a judge has to decide whether a, um, a, a cause of action, essentially, has been stated um, in the form. Um, there's also room for the tenant occupant to write particular facts that are not uh, pre-printed, um, that is not pre-printed language from the from from the statutes so a judge essentially has to decide whether to allow the case to move forward at that point in time um, we have the understanding that pro se tenants should be given um, some leeway in in when filing an order to show cause without an attorney in commencing an action 
Um, but essentially, that is how the case has started. Mm -hmm. And like we discussed in the last episode, there is a pro se form for harassment. When you arrive to housing court to file your petition for an HP for harassment, you can choose to file just for harassment, just for repairs, or for repairs and harassment. So once you fill out that pro se form, the process is the same that we discussed in the last episodes for the nuts and bolts. Um, but occupant petitioners should keep good records, logs, notes, recordings of any of these enumerated acts. So for example, if your landlord is constantly asking you to move out, offering you buyouts, keep a log of when those occur, how much was offered, whether they actually provided you with any of the required information, or if the landlord isn't providing you with essential services such as heat or hot water, cooking gas, keep a log for when those services were cut off and how long it took to be restored, the temperature readings if you don't have heat or hot water. All of these types of things you don't need when you're coming to court you don't have to bring them with you to file your pro se form, but it is a good idea to be keeping these records and notes so that you can have enough information to present your case to the court once your case is filed. When the court it does review an order to show cause, and if, if a judge chooses not to sign the order to show cause, um, I find that it's good practice that if I'm denying an order to show cause, and sending it back that I write a, a, a little explanation of why I'm denying it um, to give the, um, the movement um, the opportunity to, to correct any mistakes or omissions in an order to show cause uh, so that they can, they can always refile and hopefully they can state a claim in the papers. So that, that's just something I wanted to mention. The, uh, the filer can always try again um, so it's a good idea for the court to let them know where they've gone gone wrong on, on their original filing. Yeah, thank you, Judge. I'm sure that's really helpful, especially for pro se litigants. And so, again, you know, if you're coming to court pro se and there are violations of record from HPD, that should be enough, in my opinion, to have an order show cause to be signed. But if you're coming to court with just harassment, and you, you just want to file an, an order show cause for harassment, and maybe there are no conditions in your apartment. Maybe it's just because the landlord has only been offering you buyouts and coming to your workplace and calling you late at night or whatever the situation might be, then maybe it could be a good idea to bring those logs with you, to have those recordings with you, just in case you, the, the judge has any concern that um, your order to show cause lacks a cause of action. So another thing to, to point out about harassment, which, which was included in the, in the amendments of 2018, where the definition was really expanded, is that harassment now is a rebuttable presumption. And that means that the occupant petitioner does not have to prove intent. As long as the petitioner establishes the enumerated act, then the burden now shifts to the owner respondent to rebut that fact that they didn't actually intend for the petitioner to vacate or waive their rights to occupancy. Um, and just keep in mind though, that the rebuttable presumption kicks in for multiple dwellings. So while the harassment definition applies to all dwellings, the multiple dwelling only benefits with the rebuttable presumption. So if your unit, or you're, you live in a building that is three or more units, you don't actually have to prove the landlord or the owner's intent. But if you live in a small building with only one or two units, then you will have to prove the landlord did these acts or omissions with the intent to have you vacate or waive your rights related to occupancy. So now that we know what kind of claims can be brought, and how to bring them, why don't we talk a little bit about the defenses that are available to the landlords? BJ? So I just want to preface what I'm going to talk about by saying that there, there's not a, a lot of appellate level case law on harassment. Um, most of the case law that we see is at the trial court level. So that means it's at the 
level where uh, you would initially bring your case. Um, there are different judges across the city in five different boroughs, two different judicial departments, because the city is cut in half, but that way, where, you know, judges have come down either side of the statute for landlord, for tenant. So um, not a lot of the defenses and not a lot of the claims for harassment have really been kind of set in stone by overarching case law. Um, we have the statute as guidance, um, but there are also several defenses. So uh, the first defense, which goes to uh, probably ties in well to what Rachel was talking about, the rebuttable presumption, is failure to state a cause of action, which is um, a defense in almost all litigation. Um, the petition or the pleading that starts the case isn't specific enough to put the, the respondent or the person defending against the case, um, the landlord in this situation, on notice of what their defenses might be or that the uh, transactions or occurrences that are being described um, are described in a way that they can actually defend against them. So um, that would mean that whoever served papers is just saying, I was harassed or parroting the statute without any specificity or detail in their so that's the, uh, the first kind of general uh, claim there. Um, in order to get to the reputable presumption, you have to plead enough in your papers to get there. Um, at least that's coming from the side of someone defending against these cases. Um, the second is intent is a required uh, requirement in finding harassment, right? So there is a statutory pre rebuttable presumption once you bring a petition that survives any motion to dismiss for failure to state cause of action, but um, it is not necessarily very difficult to rebut the presumption. If, uh, and again, this is coming from the point of view of defending the case. Um, if somebody is saying that you have harassed them because you have repeatedly failed to correct conditions, and you can show that you've tried to get access to fix the conditions, or you fixed it, and something else happened, or there was a, a different cause. Um, that is generally speaking, according to my experience in litigating harassment actions, enough to rebut the presumption. And then the, the coin kind of flips again and goes back to the petitioner to actually prove that there was intent. Um, whether or not they can do that is up to them, whatever they have. Um, so it's, it does sound daunting that there is a rebuttable presumption, but if you can put in any kind of decent evidence that, you know, you did try, or you weren't trying to harass somebody, or you weren't trying to get them to vacate the apartment. Um, and oftentimes that can just be a statement of intent from the person who's being sued. Um, you can rebut the presumption. So it's not, it's not the end of the world. Uh, that there is a rebuttable presumption. It just means that you have to challenge the assertions made against you. And um, this goes back to some of the things we talked about in the earlier episodes of our podcast. Um, keep good records. You know, if somebody, if you're requesting access to a building, you should document, it. write a letter to the tenant, send an email, you know, keep a log to show that you tried to do these things. So there's that. Um, but again, intent is the crux of what this is so if you can show that you didn't intend to make somebody um vacate or give up a possessory right to the space um you can often overcome the rebuttable presumption the administrative code creates an affirmative defense to allegations of harassment based on deprivation of services um in uh, in the code uh, but there are specific elements to the defense um, that the condition or service interruption wasn't um, done purposefully um, or that the, um, that the actual interruption of service uh, was not intended to cause somebody to waive or surrender any rights in relation to such occupancy. So I've seen harassment complaints saying my heat was turned off or my hot water was turned off. Um, but the landlord was fixing the boiler on that day. So 
those kinds of things. I mean, it sounds very simple, but that that's the kind of thing sometimes that you might come across where the landlord did actually shut off the boiler to a building, but it was to perform maintenance or repairs. So again, you're it's again, you're rebutting the presumption there. Um, uh, you also have to show that you acted in good faith to promptly correct the condition or service interruption when you're kind of going there. So there is a lot of room for intent um, in the rebuttable presumption if you are, in fact, acting in good faith. Um, there's a, a defense. Uh, we see oftentimes tenants sue for harassment because they have issues with other tenants um, and they want the landlord to do something about it. Um, there is, a, a, again, a trial court level case law that says harassment doesn't lie against the landlord where the actions are due to, um, where the harassing actions are caused by or performed by another tenant on their own accord. Um, they do carve out a section where saying, yes, if the landlord purposely put somebody in an apartment to try and get you to move, um, but uh, I suspect that is often a, um, that is probably a far more rare occurrence than tenants not getting along with their neighbors or people on other floors. Um, unclean hands is a defense to harassment. If the harassment is based on situations in a building or fights with employees or fights with other tenants, did the petitioner cause the conduct or substantially cause the conduct that they're complaining about? Um, did they instigate a fight against somebody in the building um, or the super, for instance, um, who, right? It, it all goes to intent. Um, uh, a, another defense, which I'm sure Rachel may uh, take issue as, is what is the statute of limitations on a harassment claim? Um, the CPLR, 214 and CPLR 215 have two different um, have two different statute of limitations that may or may not apply to harassment. One is three years, which I'm sure tenants advocates would go for, and there's a there's a one year statute of limitations for cases where civil penalties are involved. So I'm sure landlords, practitioners, or people defending these cases would say, well, the conduct happened over a year ago. Um, was harassment ever raised in a separate proceeding? There are multiple places you can bring harassment claims. Um, you can also plead them as defenses uh, if you're being sued by your landlord in a holdover or for non-payment. So does, if you plead uh, harassment as a counterclaim in those cases, um, does it preclude you from them asserting it again later? Um, standing, lawful occupant. This is something that is... Um, come up a lot, especially in the last two years within the context of COVID. Who is a lawful occupant? Because you are entitled to service of process because you've occupied a space for more than 30 days, does that mean you are in fact a lawful occupant? Just because you have to be removed by court order, does that mean you had a lawful right to stay in the apartment? Can you maintain a uh, proceeding? So you can attack someone's standing based on that. Um, I've seen more recently, also, this has been aggravated by the circumstances surrounding COVID. Judgment and warrants in cases where people did not... Um, sort of, judgments and warrants are active against somebody occupying an apartment. And the landlord's right to remove them from the apartment was stayed by COVID, right? Um, by the court shutting down, by basically life shutting down um, in society because of COVID. Um, uh, there's been a lot of really tense situations that have gone down, especially in smaller buildings where um, tenants are uh, still occupying apartments long past what the landlord or the court or the tenant really thought was going to happen because everything was put on hold because of COVID. Um, is the landlord saying, get out of here, you shouldn't be here anymore? Is that enough? Is that is that harassment? Um, if you have a judgment and warrant against somebody for possession, is it harassment to say you shouldn't be here anymore? Um, you've already proven to a court that you are entitled to possession of an apartment, but the tenant is still living because the marshal hasn't come yet. Um, freedom, um, the statute is somewhat tempered. We've seen recently by um, your right to free speech. Is your constitutional right to free speech 
is that somehow trumped by the harassment statute? So getting into an argument with a tenant and saying, well, if you don't like it here, you should move out. Is that harassment or are you free to say that? Um, the case law would suggest that you are free to have those kinds of conversations. Um, also a quick note on um, counterclaims. Uh, the New York City administration, the New York City Administrative Code um, has a specific se section um, where if a tenant repeatedly sues a landlord for harassment and loses, where you can actually preclude a tenant from suing you for harassment. I think the, um, for a period of 10 years or so, um, if you've successfully defended two harassment proceedings on their merits and a third proceeding um, is brought and you can get it to be deemed frivolous. So there is a mechanism by which landlords can almost counter the harassment allegations and get preclusion orders. Uh, also, um, you know, if there are legal fees provisions in leases um, and a landlord prevails in defending a harassment action, whether it's frivolous or not, um, are you entitled to legal fees? Are you entitled to reimbursement for legal fees? Um, the code actually has a um, distinct scenario where if you can get a tenant's action for harassment deemed frivolous, where you, you are entitled to statutory legal fees. Um, so there is a difference, uh, there is a distinction between losing on the merits and commencing a frivolous action in the statute, but at what point are you entitled to legal fees? So that is, um, again, that's an area that's kind of gray. Thanks, Vijay. That was a very informative rundown of defenses to harassment claims. I think that among this group, we could discuss examples and hypotheticals for hours, and we would all have a lot to say. Uh, but I wanted to talk about a recent case that found that the prime tenants do not fall under the statutory definition of owner. Judge, what are your thoughts on that? Um, well, Harassment, as uh, Vijay has stated, um, we don't have a, much guidance from the higher courts in our own. So um, my colleagues um, have had to rule on these issues. Um, a prime tenant is not an owner of the building. So I would uh, generally agree that a prime tenant cannot uh, harass, at least under the housing maintenance code. Um, as it is defined, a, uh, uh, a sub-tenant or a roommate, for example. BJ, wanted to say something? Um, I think maybe it's important to talk about what a prime tenant is. Um, right, so. so an owner is defined very broadly under the Housing Maintenance Code. We talked about it in the last episode. Um, but a tenant can sublet their apartment or a co-op owner can rent or a condo owner can rent to a tenant. Um, they are not owners as defined by the housing maintenance code uh, as far or as defined by the harassment statute. Um, they don't own the building. They're not on the multiple dwelling registration. Um, so in situations where your landlord may actually be another tenant, your landlord is called the prime tenant. Um, and you would be suing the prime tenant for your landlord. You would not be suing the owner. Thank you, Vijay. Um, another interesting issue that uh, you brought up uh, before where was the acts of neighbors. That is often um, filings that, uh, that I see. Um, other tenants, of course, are not owners. Um, as you mentioned, theoretically, the failure of an owner to stop another tenant's bad acts might be an omission that the code is talking about, maybe, arguably. But let's remember what we started this uh, conversation with, um, the intent of the statute, which was to keep tenants in their units. Um, I don't think any of us would want to create an incentive for owners to evict or threaten to evict um, one bona fide tenant um, to the benefit of another tenant who's complaining about that tenant. Um, so 
that's always a tricky issue in harassment OSCs that sometimes you have to break it to the filer that there's not a claim that uh, can proceed in the housing court. I think actually I have seen a couple of cases where the tenant alleged that the neighbors were in cahoots or they were the agents of the landlord. Uh, so I think in so under some circumstances, if the pleadings are specific enough, it is possible to do a case like that. What do you think? I, I agree. It's theoretical. Um, you're sort of claiming a conspiracy um, between the other tenant and the landlord, and that's not an easy claim to actually plead. So while I do believe that there is some set of facts that could be pled where a neighbor, the acts of the neighbor can be um, uh, put at the feet of the landlord owner, it is a difficult uh, pleading to make, um, particularly for a pro se uh, petitioner. Rachel, I, thoughts on that? Yeah, I'd like to pop in on there too, because um, I, I think that since the housing maintenance code defines owner so broadly if a neighbor or a um an, another person in the building is doing harassing acts to the to the petitioner it's important to note what is that person's relationship with the owner could they be considered an owner under the housing maintenance code are they paid in any way by the owner, you know, do, do they do any acts for the owner in um, sweeping the hallways, taking out the trash? Are they related to the owner in any way? Do they have some sort of incentive to um, do any, any sort of thing to um, support the owner? I think those are all questions that I would ask um, a tenant who's experiencing behavior or omissions to know if they have a claim against this person as an owner as it is defined broadly under the housing maintenance code so i'd like to also touch a little bit about what vj spoke about in his portion describing a lot of the potential defenses um, one thing just to kind of keep in mind is that we often talk about harassment as the landlord's intent to force the, the tenant to vacate, to surrender their rights to occupancy. And I think a lot of times practitioners and even the court um, think of this too narrowly. They, they think of harassment as physical occupying, physically occupying the unit. Was this intended to actually get them to move? Did they move? Did they vacate? And I think it's important to also realize the rights related to occupancy when we think about harassment as well. There are so many rights related to occupancy that the code defines that the landlord could intend to have you surrender. So that's another little thing to think about as we discuss harassment and the defenses is that it's so, to me, there, there's so much that could be done with those enumerated acts. Um, VJ pointed out the statute of limitations. I think it's interesting here. Is it one year? Is it three years? Is it six years? Um, because six years is also a potential um, option that it could be. And, and we don't have case law at the appellate level to give any guidance or precedent to this. I obviously argue that it is between three or six years. It's a statutory cause of action that would give it three years. Um, there's a recent case in the Eastern District, actually, about the administrative code's uh, definition of harassment. And it talks about it could be between three or six years, but it doesn't actually give a, an answer. The court discusses it, but it doesn't answer this question for practitioners. And that's Tejada versus Little City Realty. Um, and I think that's very interesting is that we still have this question as to what is the statute of limitations. And, and to me, it's no less than three years based on the simple fact that it is a claim birthed out of the 
statute. So that's a very interesting point, Rachel. And as you just said, and as we've heard mentioned earlier, there is a scarcity of appellate case law on these types of harassment cases. In the meantime, the last two years, the harassment filings have increased and we have seen more trials, motion practice and decisions from the trial courts. Judge, why do you think we've had such an increase of trial level decisions, but not appellate decisions? <laughs> um, well, there are a lot of factors why we're seeing so many filings over the last two years. Number one being the pandemic and the effect that it has had on our lives and on the courts. Um, I mean, we all understand that, at least in my view, um, while the statute was broadly meant to, uh, to stop uh, the emptying or the attempted emptying of rent-regulated units, it does apply to all units, as Rachel mentioned, and the majority of filings that I see in the Bronx are for small buildings, um, one, two, three family buildings. Um, and I think that has to do with the pandemic, um, the proximity of people living together during a time where one, landlords could not um, avail themselves to the court for relief if they wanted an occupant or a tenant to vacate and two the tenant in those units or the tenants occupants in those units um being constrained themselves by by covid and the difficulties in vacating so just from my perspective uh, the majority of filings that i see in the bronx are from small homes one two or three family homes um if we recall the purpose of the harassment statute in large part was to um, protect tenants living in rent-regulated units, although the statute clearly applies to um, all dwellings. Um, so why is that? I think uh, that can be answered by uh, the circumstances that we've uh, seen in the last two years. Landlords over the last two years have had difficulty in using the court process, um, the legal process to empty apartments or to get an apartment back for themselves. And those same occupants and tenants in those apartments have had difficulty finding alternate housing. I mean, this has been the basis of much of, um, of why we've had uh, the stays that have been in effect and the laws that have been passed in the last two years. So that has an effect. And if you force people who would not normally be living together um, to live together, or to deal with each other over a long period of time, there are human reactions and you find the filings that we have um, in housing court. Um, so, I mean, that's essentially why we've seen so many cases um, proceed and have all these trial decisions. Now, why do we have all these trial decisions? It's because harassment in a very real sense is a very personal um, claim, especially when it is these uh, small buildings. Um, you know, for example, there have been several cases published where part of the harassing act is the allegation that the landlord has called um, child protective services on on a tenant um, just to intimidate them or harass them to give up a tenancy right. Now, how do you ask that person who's making the claim to settle um slap the landlord on the wrist and say don't do it again i mean you're talking about people's lives their children and harassment claims generally are difficult to settle um i don't know what vj thinks about that but from the court's perspective they are difficult to settle petitioners are often unwilling to settle if there is such a thing uh, what do uh, respondent landlords think about settlements? Um, uh, there's a little bit of interplay between the certificate of no harassment and a finding of harassment. Um, so a certificate of no harassment can actually bar you from getting permits to do construction. Um, you know, the majority of the housing stock in New York is really old. 
or getting old. Um, so not there's a an interplay between um, being able to get permits so you can actually perform maintenance on your buildings or renovate apartments that are vacant, things like that, where if you have a harassment violation against you, it can really, really jam up your ability to deal with problems in your building and deal with them according to how the DOB wants you to and how some of the other statutes that Rachel was talking about earlier were passed. You know, you want to finish construction quickly on a vacant apartment or a problem in the building, and you need permits for it, for the scaffold outside, to do pointing, for roof work, for plumbing work, gas work. Um, a, 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 a harassment violation that prevents you from uh, getting building permits can actually cause you to be put in a situation where more people are suing you for harassment because conditions are existing past certification deadlines. So the, the red tape that can exist because of harassment findings are, are problematic. They also don't come off um, HPD violation reports. Uh, so if you need to refinance your building uh, and you need to get a a bank to sign off on a mortgage to re to uh to fund your building because remember a lot of the low rent regulated properties don't really generate enough of a rent roll to um to really maintain the buildings the way everybody wants them to be maintained especially the smaller buildings i'm talking about um so really these are like zero-sum cases if you feel that you can completely knock out a harassment claim because it's not enough, um, it's it's advisable to do so. Um, you know, it's there's too much gray area at the moment surrounding the statute and how it's enforced and what is and what is not harassment. That it is not really reliable. You know, if you settle a case saying without admitting to any allegations in the petition, um, we agree not to harass this person, right? Well, what did you just agree to, right? I mean, if the case gets brought back, are you trying their initial allegations? Are you starting from scratch? Are you going just from the point in time where you agreed? You know, it's... There's a lot of uncertainty and a lot of risk there. Um, so, so it's the risk that makes it uh, um, difficult uh, for a landlord to settle this type of case. It's not like um, agreeing to an abatement, get paid the rest of uh, the money or a rental arrears that a tenant might owe you, and that's the end of the case. You don't have to worry about something outside of that stipulation coming back to, to harm your client. So so uh, I think right, and, that's essentially what you're trying to say. Yeah. And also, you know, winning, winning or successfully defending a harassment claim on, on the merits is, is valuable to protect yourself as a landlord in a building where you have a problem with maybe even a specific tenant or if there's a tenants, I mean, and this is, I'll talk about if there's a tenants union and there's a lot of litigation history between the parties and a landlord successfully defends a harassment action, that is invaluable in protecting yourself. Uh, I'm not saying, in saying this, I'm not saying that like the landlord's goal should be to break a tenants union or this, that, and the other, but like if there is a significant history of litigation or say you buy into a building, where there is a significant history of litigation with a prior owner and the tenants are rightfully enraged about what they've had to go through with somebody else um, or a 7a administrator was appointed and then the building has changed hands and the tenants um, are are on a i want to say like a war footing where they're used to like having to assert their rights through legal process and you're coming into the situation um sometimes uh, you know, there, there have been many instances where sometimes the owner has to prevail in an action like this um, on the merits where a court of law makes a decision um, and they can then justify themselves um, um, before a return to normal modes of 
communication happen. Um, I've had that situation happen in litigation. Um, I'm not saying necessarily that either side was right or wrong here. It's just that, you know, um, sometimes, sometimes relationships have to be repaired before they can move forward. And a lot of the times it takes the finality of the trial decision um, to get there. So I'd like to make a point on, um, you know, the idea of like these personal claims and, and stuff, because what we spoke about in, in earlier episodes is, you know, how, how the housing maintenance code is this bare minimum. And what I see often is shoddy or cover up repair work. And so by the time a tenant is coming to housing court to seek repairs, the, the relationship is just broken. Um, and, and I think for harassment too, no one wants to spend so much time and resources away from their work, away from their families, away from doing everything else that they have to do in their lives, having to go through a harassment trial. I feel like I see a lot of desperation amongst tenants because they are living through dangerous conditions or feeling so uncomfortable in their homes that it's not just a personal issue, but they don't have anything else to do. There's no other recourse for them but to go to housing court and seek relief. Um, and so I think that's important to keep in mind is that not only are these difficult to settle because the landlord has this strong pecuniary interest in being able to continue to do work and flip apartments and, and, and all these other things, but, but tenants, are literally living through experiences that are very difficult to, to, to talk about. It's emotional for them. Their families are experiencing health issues or there's a lot of problems that they cannot escape from. Their home, their sanctuary is becoming a space that is hostile or dangerous. So that's kind of another issue to think about, another layer um, that makes these, these cases also difficult. I was kind of less talking about flipping apartments, more so referring to like, you know, in a hundred year old building, the gas line needs to be replaced or the building needs to be repiped. And you have to jump through enough red tape with Con Ed to begin with if there's a harassment violation and that's going to further impact you being able or slow down you being able to get a permit, it can create a big problem. It turns like four months to get the gas back on into a year, right? Mm -hmm. And that's... Uh, another year of rent abatements because it's no gas it's a year of tenants not having gas it's uh you know so it can have um you know I, I think um when we talk about harassment we have a clear idea of what the worst case scenario is right we have a clear idea of what a bad actor is right probably on both sides um the problem right now is that the statute was passed about a year before um, everything stopped um, and the normal process of appeal and trying cases and actually being in court to deal with these kind of issues um, according to the new law hasn't played out as much as perhaps we would have liked at this point and we're dealing with a situation where these gray areas are far more prevalent than the the bad actor that we envisioned um that the legislature envisioned in trying to stop harassment you know the person that uh deprives their tenant of essential services at every possible moment to make sure that they leave right uh, i have seen in in the number of harassment cases that i've dealt with i've probably dealt with um probably just defended 30 or so of them. Um, uh, I have not, I've come across maybe one case where the landlord was even being accused of depriving essential services. Um, and that was a group action where a tenants union was asserting harassment. So um, let me just say something, VJ, to, to, sorry to cut you off. I think we, ha I think we have broad agreement that if a, uh, leaving aside defenses regarding access and things like that, sure. that if there are violations of record, um, hazardous or immediately hazardous, and these are things we've spoken about previously, and the landlord has 
has had access, has the ability to make those corrections, and they do not, that is considered harassment under the statute, a, re a rebuttable presumption, right? Um, same thing with um, uh, essential services. I think we would all agree that those things are, we don't want to say easy to prove, but it largely relies on documentary evidence. Um, was there a violation? Is there a violation? Did that time to correct expire? Um, what did the landlord do to get access? Did the tenant give access? And those cases um, are fairly straightforward. They are less um, subjective. The difficulty with the harassment statute is that it is very broad and it has a catch-all provision that talks about um, repeated acts or omissions that uh, are intended to affect the tenants, what are the words, peace, quiet, repose in their apartment. And I think that's what Rachel was touching on. It's not just did they leave, um, you know, is there some? Is there this uh, violation in in the one room that they can't use? It's more than that. The statute is broader than that. It's how uncomfortable have you made uh, this tenant who's supposed to have peace in their apartment? And the difficulty comes in where the court has to. Um, it, it's more objective in some ways, right? Um, what one tenant might say is. They were just, you know, the landlord and I got into a verbal altercation. He said what he needed to say. I said what I needed to say, and we moved on. Another tenant might say, the landlord threatened me. That made me feel like very uncomfortable of being here, and I think he's doing that to make me leave. And that's the claim. And now how does the court resolve that claim? It's not easy. It's not as easy as looking at, is there a violation? Did the time to repair it expire? oh, landlord, now it's it's your turn to defend it because there's a rebuttable presumption. So I think we have a broad consensus that some things are more straightforward, but there is a lot of, um, a lot in the statute that's not so straightforward. And that's where the difficulty comes in for all of us, uh, all the practitioners, the litigants, the the petitioners, the tenant, uh, the landlords, and the court, which eventually has to try these cases. So, right, and I think that when you do look back at the legislative intent and the city council at that time that was passing all of these bills to protect tenants and to disincentivize owners from engaging in acts of harassment with the certificate of no harassment, STS bills, enlarging harassment under the housing maintenance code. I mean, I think when you go back and look at all of that, you see that this this city council wanted to make it easier for tenants not just to bring these cases, but for there to be findings of harassment. That's where you, you get this rebuttable presumption and, and this kind of strict liability in these enumerated acts. Going back to those very subjective versus objective, is there violations of, dis, of, of record? Are there no essential services? Was there a, a buyout offer that did not include the requirements under the law? Those I think were made specifically by the city council to allow more findings of harassment to help protect tenants and to attach these very severe uh, consequences as almost um, warning signs to owners who were before doing so many different things with construction as harassment. Um, and so, so I think that all of that is very important to realize when thinking about uh, the code and how it's drafted as well. Rachel, why do you think if the city council has made it so you know, quote unquote easy for harassment to be found, right? Or made it such a strict liability that it should just be harassment, right? Why uh, Why are there not far more findings? That is a great question that I have also been asking as a tenant advocate. And I think you do have to look at the, the decisions that we've had so far. You know? Is there also, if, like, even though the statutes are strict liability and even though it's very easy to bring a harassment case, perhaps prosecute a harassment case, you know, 
a lot of the times when, and I'm, you know, I'm not saying this coming from like a personal political perspective or anything like that, but I think we find that when statutes are heavily, heavily one-sided, it's not always easy to enforce them. There are many other considerations that have to come into effect or come into account when you're talking about enforcing statutes that are so heavily weighted to one side, right? Well, I don't want to get into the politics of um, this discussion, but it is important to note that after um, this harassment statute was passed, the HSTPA was passed, which in large part, not totally and definitely not totally, but in large part disincentivized on its own um, clearing out of rent reg regulated units because the ability to raise rents when those apartments became empty um, has largely, um, again, not totally, but largely um, disappeared. Um, you know, I make no, no, uh, I don't take any position on that. That's what the legislature wanted to do. But um, if on one hand you have a statute that predates that statute, which was enacted because there was this incentive to empty apartments to raise the rents, and that incentive largely goes away, there is um, some interplay there as well. I, I know that we're not going to have great answers on that, but it, it's certainly um, one of the elephants in the room, I think. I was also getting at kind of, you know, the, the statute is, uh, is broad. It is broad, right? Um, and it is as part of a, a, a big package of tenant protections, right? Um, and if you are a landlord's attorney or a, an advocate for landlords, or landlord's rights, whatever you want to say, um, you, you would say it's very one-sided. But I'm looking at it from a point of view that if you look at the decisions about harassment, right, in housing court, generally in housing court, um, due process is spoken about in terms of service, you know, whether or not you were afforded proper notice. But in the harassment decisions, some of the decisions we look at, free speech gets brought up. Due process gets brought up. Constitutional issues become apparent in statutes that are heavily weighted, right? So I think when you look at a lot of the decisions that have come out on harassment, and again, there isn't a lot, that they do start touching on some issues that typically we wouldn't have seen in housing court before. So I think it's almost a balancing, right? So I don't know, it's just something to think about. So Vijay, I actually have a question for you. And actually it's a question for everybody on this panel, but especially for you, given the stakes that you have just discussed in these types of cases, why do we have so little appellate case law are the landlords just not appealing them? Why do you think that is? I mean, it's, uh, I mean, we're taught this in law school, right? It's really hard. Appellate courts don't like to disturb the findings of the trial court. And these are really fact-based. You're trying to prove someone's intent. You're trying to prove facts alleged in a petition. This isn't something that's hinging on interpretation of law in many instances. The trial court is often given tremendous discretion in making findings of fact. And uh, I don't think there's a lot of room sometimes to appeal decisions. If a judge turns around and says, yeah, well, I looked at this and I don't think there was harassment or they successfully defended the intent or, um, you know, a landlord is found to have harassed their tenants because of A, B, C, D through Z. How are you going to disturb that finding of fact, right? Let me, let me direction. If I could speak to that, first of all, I would um, commend my colleagues for writing fact-laden trial decisions, which, as we know, the appellate courts, um, they like to see a lot of facts. If you're relying on, uh, you know, whether a person was truthful and the facts that were in front of you, um, you're not likely to get, uh, I mean, making credibility determinations and the facts that were in front of you, you're not likely to get reversed. But that being said, even then you would have um, appellate case law. I think a lot of it has to do with timing. Some of these um, 
amendments, as uh, Rachel and Vijay were st stated before, are fairly new. And then um, the litigants themselves, who are often pro se um, for some amount of time, have no idea that these um, amendments have been made um, and that they have the right to come to housing court and claim that they're being harassed. Um, I think I think they have learned through necessity, perhaps, um, maybe some other ways that I'm not aware of, that it is a viable claim in housing court. And, uh, you know, people have been taking advantage of that. And um, the many decisions that are now being written over time, um, hopefully we will get to the appellate appellate term and appellate division and and have some clarity given to us um uh, and i think all of us uh judges practitioners litigants we all look forward to for the gu guidance from the appellate levels and with that our third episode has come to an end uh we hope you enjoyed this episode and the discussion because i know i did and I hope that you will join us next time when we discuss more hot topics related to HP actions. Thank you for listening to this New York City Bar Association podcast. Opinions expressed are those of the speakers and not necessarily of the City Bar. Find more City Bar podcasts and program audio on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, or Stitcher, or on our website at nycbar.org podcasts. This podcast was produced by Alex Cardaris.